Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. We have a half an hour of science ready to go for you. Welcome. My name is Claire and this week on the show, you see, this summer I've noticed there's been a bit of an increase in the number of different insects and and other different animals that I've seen scurrying around and a lot of people have said this to me. You know, I don't know, Stu, have you seen maybe more uh, crickets or more cicadas or more mice than you normally see, more insects? I, I've i definitely noticed an increase in rodent activity, but I'm not You've seen an increase in sure rodent activity. ...about insects, but, it, it, mm. you know, it, it does seem, you know, it is summer and there's a lot more flying around in the summer than there is in, in winter, but I maybe I've just put it down to that seasonal difference so i thought i would have a look at a couple of specific cases um, that i've noticed cicadas and mice and see what is really going on and what the science can tell us about that because we are a science show we're not just a oh i heard this no 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 we we might start with an anecdote but we really (laughs) dive deep into the into the evidence-based side of storytelling yes Yes, and I mean, it's, it, it isn't going to be the deepest dive, but it is going to be somewhat of a um, shallow dive, a safety a safety dive, I don't know, whatever you call them. Stu, what do you have for us this week? Well, last weekend was Valentine's Day, and it got me thinking <laughs> about flowers, because it's such a common gift yeah. to give at Valentine's Day, and I feel very sorry for all the florists in Melbourne who, who didn't yeah. get to sell their wares. But uh, but it did get me thinking about flowers and I was thinking about how um, how plants know when to flower and mm. it actually led me down a path of uh, looking at uh, or thinking about parasitic plants. <laughs> And I love how that your brain has gone from Valentine's Day to parasitic plants like it's no big deal. Yeah, codependence, parasitism, <laughs> Valentine's Day, it's all in there. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was, it was, I was curious to, uh, to, you know, started looking at flowers and I went, oh, this is, there's a whole world of um, weirdness about parasitic plants, which I uh, jumped right into and, you know, went down a... Uh, a rabbit hole and uh yeah so i've just found some pretty amazing science about parasitic plants which is all kind of new as well so there's a lot of research going on in parasitic plants which is quite unusual Ah. i'll just be looking at how do these plants survive and how do they deal with their somewhat reduced function as uh parasites rather than as free living plants Well, I can't wait to hear all about it. Parasites and booming insects and mice. On with the show. 
in the world of biology, there are living things that take up every possible niche in the environment, all competing to find enough space and nutrients to reproduce and pass on their genes. And I don't know if you remember a story I did a while back, Claire, about the world's smallest animals. Um, I I do, yes. um, Several of which were parasitic animals, meaning uh, Mm. they were very much reliant almost completely in some cases on a host organism to survive. And part of the reason these creatures could get so small is they have lost some of their abilities and even body parts to shrink themselves down and be more energy efficient and survive on less energy. Uh, Now, this is not something that is unique to the animal kingdom, and there are numerous species of parasitic plants that have a similar survival strategy. Um, Now, one of the better-known parasitic plants, which I think probably everyone has heard the name, is uh, related to Christmas traditions in parts of the world. I'm talking about mistletoe. Oh, mistletoe! Yeah. It's it's a plant which grows on other plants. Uh, it doesn't produce its own root system. It just taps into the vascular system of another plant and survives that way. Now, the mistletoe that is of all of those Christmas traditions from the Northern Hemisphere is not the same mistletoe as what we get in Australia. They're separate genera. They they live in you know they're different different ancestors in the plant kingdom, but they have similar survival strategies. Now, most of these species, they vary in different parts of the world. They still have leaves and flowers and otherwise have a reasonably normal life cycle, just like other plants. It's just that they happen to tap into the vascular system of another plant and use that plant to get the water and nutrients and sugars, in some cases, uh, that they need to survive. Now, in the case of a group of plants called dodders, this is what they're called, D-O-D-D-R-S. Dodders. Dodders. They don't have any leaves of their own, and this presents an unusual problem for them in a number of ways. Um, One of those ways is in reproduction, because uh, plants basically can tell what time of year it is because of their leaves. So their leaves are photosynthesizing all the time, measuring how long the days and nights are and all this sort of information gathering that the leaves actually do. So if you've got no leaves, how does a plant know when to flower? So Mm. some plants flower as the days get longer. Other plants flower as the days get shorter. Some plants are not fussy at all and they'll flower once they reach a certain stage Uh, of development. It doesn't matter what time of year it is to these other plants. But all of them are triggered to flower by proteins that get produced in the leaves of the plant. So the dodder plants don't have any leaves. They're found all over the world. Uh, There's a lot more species in the tropics, just like there is for lots and lots of different other organisms. Uh, But there's lots in temperate and cooler areas as well. And they're actually part of the morning glory family the Convolvulaceae family, which is a a family of uh, twining vine-type plants. 
Now, the dotter plants, as I said, don't produce any leaves or any chlorophyll, which is how other plants synthesize sugar. So they're not green. What do they look like? They are like yellow, wiry stems. Uh, Yellow or orange in colour, they grow on other plants. They germinate and produce a tiny little root, and then they tap into other plants using these specially adapted organs called hostoria. They tap into the stems (laughs) of the host plant and absorb sugar and water and nutrients, and basically their root system dies off, and they just sort of... Uh, grow over the top of these host plants that they feed from. Whoa. But as I said, no leaves to produce the chemicals that trigger flowering. So the dotter plants have no clue when they should produce flowers. They just take hints from the host plant instead. So uh, in a paper published in August 2020 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, they presented evidence that an Australian dotter species called Cascata australis uses chemical cues from its host plant to trigger flowering. So they actually um, put a fluorescent tag on particular proteins in the host plants and trans, you know, tracked them moving from the host plant to the uh, Australian dotter species. And then they, they could see that they actually had passed from the host plant into the into the parasite plant. Are these proteins that are normally related to flowering or yeah. like what yeah, so, how, how do they know yeah so the the, the plant uh, the protein is called the flowering locus T protein and right, it is okay. it has been you know recorded as being related to flowering but what they also noticed was when they're observing the plants they put the they put the Australian dotter on three different kinds of plants that flower at different times, and the dotter adapted to the flowering time of the plant that it was put right. on top of. So uh, what they were saying is that this suggests why this genus of parasitic plants has been so successful because it flowers and produces seed at the same time as the host plant is flowering and producing seed. So the little germinating dotter plants can then parasitize the germinating seedlings of the host plant as they emerge and they continue the cycle for another generation. That's extremely clever and so well adapted. Yeah, and and, and this is why these dotter plants are found in every continent all over the world. Uh, parasitizing all sorts of plants from alfalfa to wattle trees, potatoes, tomatoes. They cause massive crop losses and failures if they're not um, kept under control. So it's pretty much, yeah, it's a pretty amazing little trick that they've got. But I was, while I was reading about these dotter plants, I found out about another parasitic species called Sapria Himalayana which spends almost its entire life cycle hidden away completely inside the tissue of its host plant. And it only, <sighs> it only emerges from its host plant when it flowers. So it's basically wow. lost, it's lost almost all of, its, uh, all of its original genome because it doesn't have to grow roots, doesn't have to grow leaves, it just produces flowers. Does it produce flowers out of the other plants, like the host plant's flowers? 
No, it just bursts out of the stems of the plant <laughs> when it's flowering time. So it's 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 still like alien. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it is. It really is like like an alien flower just bursting out. And uh, apparently, there's no evidence Whoa. that it exists until these flowers burst open <gasps> and emerge from the host plant to attract pollinators. Now, they're not particularly attractive uh, flowers to humans. They smell. And this is, you know, yet another reference to horror movies. They smell like rotting flesh, the flowers of this parasite. And they attract flies to fertilise the flowers uh, of this species. So they not only burst out like some sort of horror parasite uh, creature, but the, the flowers smell like rotting flesh. And, you know, back back to my original reason for thinking about these flowering plants probably not the kind of flowers that you'd choose to give to your valentine on valentine's day I was chatting to a friend recently and they were saying that everyone that they talked to seemed to be seeing a lot of insects and a lot of small animals around at the moment in summer, more than we would have seen um, in the past couple of years. Have you heard that? Yeah, and I've got to, I've got to say I was driving just after, uh, after Christmas and in the early New Year, driving around in the country uh, and I did seem to get quite a lot of splattering on my windshield. Bit of splattering. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I mean, you know, whether they be splattering on your windshield, washing up on the beach or deafening you in the bush, people seem to be noticing there's what I guess biologists would call a larger biomass um, of things alive at the moment or, you know, a volume big volume of small creatures that are around um everything seems to be buzzing and a bit more than than what we're what we have seen in the last couple of years you know i mean if you think about it, it sort of makes a lot of sense we've been in this la nina cycle we've just seen a lot of rainfall up and down the east coast over summer and these conditions lead to you know more plant growth more water around which of course animals tend to eat and then reproduce quite quickly 
But having said that, this is a science show, not a speculation show. So although that might be a working theory, you know, whether that is actually the case or not, needs to be investigated further. Right? Right. We're not here. <laughs> yes. We're not getting lost in speculation. <laughs> lost in speculation. Although sometimes I do enjoy getting lost in speculation. <laughs> let's be let's be perfectly honest. So I I wanted to do a little bit of um, investigation, a little bit of research, a little bit of sussing out what the experts are saying about this boom in different animal populations. Um, and wanted to start off with everyone's favourite summer insect. I'm, of course, talking about the cicada, or in Victoria, uh, it's referred to as the cicada, Yeah, look, I, I was, I was uh, born in, in Queensland and raised uh, until I was speaking <laughs> in Sydney, so I, I also say cicada. Yeah. You know, people don't often talk about the difference between New South Wales and Victoria being the cicada line or the cicada line as much as they do about potato cakes and potato scallops. But I think it is quite an interesting um, inflection. So just to get back to the anecdote for a moment, cicadas, I've been seeing them. They've been super active. All of the East Coast that I've traveled to over the last couple of months, I've I've heard a lot of uh, cicadas, um, like deafeningly active. And um, maybe our listeners, maybe yourself, Stu, you've found yourself also struggling to hear anything other than um, the cicadas in the middle of the day. And according to University of Sydney expert David Emery, uh, cicadas have actually been having a wonderful bumper season uh, in no small part due to, like I said before, the rainfall that's eased the impacts of the drought and the bushfire. In general, we tend to see the year after a bushfire having a wonderful emergence of of cicadas. So that's sort of on trend with what we generally tend to see and what has been reported and then also what has been studied um, scientifically. So that's 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 what would, would have been predicted is that we had big bushfires in large parts of the country last year and then the following year it's usually followed by an, a, 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 a bumper emergence of uh, cicadas. Cause yeah. Because they, they grow in the soil for the sta- early stage of their life, right? That's right. They, they grow in the soil for many years, I think up to 13 years, and then emerge after that. Um, so, you know... If if I was a cicada, I'd want to emerge on a um, um, on a La Nina year where there's lots of, you know, it's not going to be too hot for me. I'm not going to get burnt, um, and there's also going to be a lot of food and a lot of other cicadas around, I guess. Um, but what you would have noticed is they are extremely loud. Just to give you some perspective, a normal conversation between humans is around sixty decibels. Some cicada species, such as Every you know, one of everyone's favourites, the green grocer cicada, uh, which is found along the coast of southeast Australia, it can reach around 120 decibels. So that's the equivalent to standing next to emergency sirens. Wow. And also the edge of causing pain and injury to human ears, which is generally around 130 decibels. It's a good thing they're high up in the trees and not right next to my head. If, if they could potentially cause injury to my eardrums. Yeah, but sometimes they sound like they're right next to your head, you know? Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. And the noise is created by their timbal, which is a structure and it works sort of like a drum. So the timbal is a thin membrane and it's stretched across a number of their ribs or like, you know, the insect equivalent of ribs. And that creates really large chambers. Um, and then the membranes vibrate rapidly um, through the muscles uh, or the insect muscles of the cicada which makes a clicking sound that's then amplified by their hollow abdomen. So that's sort of um, how that tends to work. It's pretty amazing. And just in case, you know, you are out, you can hear a lot of cicadas around and you want to contribute to science while you are being deafened at the same time, uh, then you can do that. There is a citizen science project out there. It is called the Great Cicada Blitz. <laughs> It's online and you can head over there and contribute the sounds and the location of where the cicadas are from wherever you are, um, which will go to help scientists better understand what exactly is happening, the volume um, of cicadas that are calling. So that's that will give us insights into when they're emerging and in what sort of numbers they're emerging as well. Can they, can they, uh, can they use that? to tell the difference between which species are out or do they all sound pretty much Ooh, the same? That's a good question. I hope so. Surely there'd be some differences because otherwise they'd all get confused. You'd think you'd, so, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd, need yeah. to, you'd need to be able to distinguish your own species from some other random yeah. species of cicada. That's right. Um, just like frogs. So one other booming animal that I noticed as I drove the back roads of New South Wales over the Christmas period was the humble, well, maybe not humble, but quite destructive, just the amount of mice on the road. Yeah, driving at night, there seemed to be, honestly, a mouse dashing across the road every 15 seconds. It was incredible how many mice there were. Uh, and it doesn't seem to be just me noticing this mouse boom. Uh, there seem to be reports in a lot of Western New South Wales and uh, and then all the way up into Queensland in what is being described as, in some parts of Western New South Wales as a blanket of mice. The reason for this blanket is because, of course, you guessed it, um, it's very good feed conditions and there was a lot of rain and then the rain eased and as soon as the rain eased, you've got mice breeding like with the best conditions around that they have been for many years. Can you can you say um, can you say mice breeding like rabbits or is that an inappropriate <laughs> comparison? Well, I think mice probably breed quicker than rabbits. Right. You see, mice breeding starts at 6 weeks of age and they can have a litter every 28 sorry, every 21 days after that. So a pair of mice can give rise to around 500 offspring in just one season. Wow. I know. So rabbits could take a lesson from the mice in that case. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And if you think about those 500 then, you know, going on to breed, I mean, it, it, it's a pretty steep exponential curve that, that you end up with. Now, luckily the CSIRO, I mean, obviously mice cause incredible devastation to crops um but the csiro gathers scientific evidence uh every year about potential mice plagues um and can sort of 
can use this information to determine if a plague is around the corner and if it's on the horizon. Um, and with all these reports, they are reporting that there are higher than normal numbers of mice for this time. I haven't seen anywhere that there's been a definite signal that this is turning into a plague, but I think farmers are fairly nervous at the moment. Um, but just like any good model to predict a future outcome, um, the CSIRO need data. So once again, comes back to citizen science due as my stories so often do there is a mouse alert app that you can download and if you see a lot of mouse activity if you're a farmer or just someone driving along a deserted um back road like me you can um put in the the local mouse population hotspot and say where you've seen this increased mouse activity. Um, and then that will go towards helping the CSIRO predict whether there's going to be a future mouse plague. Uh, so, yeah, citizen science, saving the day once again, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. With the rain and the temperature, you know, easing and temperate conditions this year, we have seen some really bumper numbers of these you know, somewhat iconic species like cicadas, but also some hectic, hectically destructive species like mice. But with this, it also means, I guess, that other species that rely on mice and insects for food may well be having a bumper summer as well, um, which, you know, after all the year, after the year of bushfires that we've had, may be a very good thing indeed. That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation at the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight.gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR or try us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1. Or just tune in again next week wherever you listen to us when Stu, Claire and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.